Part One of The People of the Crater by Andre Norton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Greg Marguerite. The People of the Crater by Andre Norton. Part One. Send the Black Throne to dust, conquer the Black Ones, and bring the Daughter from the Caves of Darkness. These were the tasks Garin must perform to fulfill the prophecy of the Ancient Ones and establish his own destiny in this hidden land. Chapter 1 Through the Blue Haze Six months and three days after the Peace of Shanghai was signed and the Great War of 1965-1970 declared at an end by an exhausted world, a young man huddled on a park bench in New York, staring miserably at the gravel beneath his badly worn shoes. He had been trained to fill the pilot's seat in the control cabin of a fighting plane and for nothing else. The search for a niche in civilian life had cost him both health and ambition. A newcomer dropped down on the other end of the bench. The flyer studied him bitterly. He had the decent shoes, a warm coat, and that air of satisfaction with the world which is the result of economic security. Although he was well into middle age, the man had a compact grace of movement and an air of alertness. "'Aren't you Captain Garin Featherstone?' Startled, the flyer nodded dumbly. From a plump billfold, the man drew a clipping and waved it towards his seatmate. Two years before, Captain Garin Featherstone of the United Democratic Forces had led a perilous bombing raid into the wilds of Siberia to wipe out the vast expeditionary army secretly gathering there. It had been a spectacular affair and had brought the survivors some fleeting fame. You're the sort of chap I've been looking for, the stranger folded the clipping again. A flyer with courage, initiative, and brains. The man who led that raid is worth investing in. What's the proposition? asked Featherstone wearily. He no longer believed in luck. I'm Gregory Farson, the other returned, as if it should answer the question. The Antarctic man? Just so. As you have probably heard, I was halted on the eve of my last expedition by the sudden spread of war to this country. Now I am preparing to sail south again. But I don't see how you can help me. Very simple, Captain Featherstone. I need pilots. Unfortunately, the war has disposed of most of them. I'm lucky to contact one such as yourself. And it was as simple as that. But Garin didn't really believe that it was more than a dream until they touched the glacial shores of the polar continent some months later. As they brought ashore the three large planes, he began to wonder at the driving motive behind Farson's vague plans. When the supply ship sailed, not to return for a year, Farson called them together. Three of the company were pilots, all war veterans, and two were engineers who spent most of their waking hours engrossed in the maps Farson produced. Tomorrow, the leader glanced from face to face, we start inland, here. On a map spread before him, he indicated a line marked in purple. Ten years ago, I was a member of the Verdane expedition. Once, when flying due south, our plane was caught by some freakish air current and drawn off its course. When we were totally off our map, we saw in the distance a thick, bluish haze. It seemed to rise in a straight line from the ice plane to the sky. 
Unfortunately, our fuel was low, and we dared not risk a closer investigation. So we fought our way back to the base. Verdane, however, had little interest in our report, and we did not investigate it. Three years ago, that Kadak expedition, hunting oil deposits by the order of the dictator, reported seeing the same haze. This time, we are going to explore it. Why? Garin asked curiously. Are you so eager to penetrate this haze? I gather that's what we're here to do. Farson hesitated before answering. It has often been suggested that beneath the ice sheeting of this continent may be hidden mineral wealth. I believe that the haze is caused by some form of volcanic activity and perhaps a break in the crust. Garin frowned at the map. He wasn't so sure about that explanation, but Farson was paying the bills. The flyer shrugged away his uneasiness. Much could be forgiven a man who allowed one to eat regularly again. Four days later they set out. Helmley, one of the engineers, Rolson, a pilot, and Farson occupied the first plane. The other engineer and pilot were in the second, and Garin, with the extra supplies, was alone in the third. He was content to be alone as they took off across the blue-white waste. His ship, because of its load, was loggy, so he did not attempt to follow the other two in the higher lane. They were in communication by radio, and Garin, as he snapped on his earphones, remembered something Farson had said that morning. The haze affects radio. On our trip near it, the static was very bad. Almost, with a laugh, like speech in some foreign tongue. As they roared over the ice, Garin wondered if it might have been speech from, perhaps, a secret enemy expedition such as the Kadak one. In his sealed cockpit he did not feel the bite of the frost and the ship rode smoothly. With a little sigh of content he settled back against the cushions, keeping to the course set by the planes ahead and above him. Some five hours later they left the base. Garin caught sight of a dark shadow far ahead. At the same time Farson's voice chattered in his earphone. That's it. Set course straight ahead. The shadow grew until it became a wall of purple-blue from earth to sky. The first plane was quite close to it, diving down into the vapor. Suddenly the ship rocked violently and swung earthward as if out of control. Then it straightened and turned back. Garin could hear Farson demanding to know what was the matter, but from the first plane there was no reply. As Farson's plane kept going, Garin throttled down. The actions of the first ship indicated trouble. What if that haze were a toxic gas? Close up, Featherstone, barked Farson suddenly. He obediently drew ahead until they flew wing to wing. The haze was just before them, and now Garin could see movement in it, oily, impenetrable billows. The motors bit into it. There was clammy, foggy moisture on the windows. Abruptly Garin sensed that he was no longer alone. Somewhere in the empty cabin behind him was another intelligence, a measuring power. He fought furiously against it, against the very idea of it. But after a long, terrifying moment, while it seemed to study him, it took control. His hands and feet still manipulated the ship, but it flew. On the ship hurtled through the thickening mist. He lost sight of Farson's plane, and though he was still fighting against the will which overrode his, his struggles grew weaker. Then came the order to dive into the dark heart of the purple mists. Down they whirled. Once, as the haze opened, Garin caught a glimpse of tortured gray rock seamed with yellow. Farson had been right. Here the ice crust was broken. 
Down and down, if his instruments were correct, the plane was below sea level now. The haze thinned and was gone. Below spread a plain cloaked in vivid green, here and there reared clumps of what might be trees. He saw, too, the waters of a yellow stream. But there was something terrifyingly alien about that landscape. Even as he circled above it, Garin wrestled to break the grip of the will that had brought him there. There came a crackle of sound in his earphones, and at that moment the presence withdrew. The noise of the plane went up in obedience to his own desire. Frantically he climbed away from the green land. Again the haze absorbed him. He watched the moisture bead on the windows. Another hundred feet or so and he would be free of it, and that unbelievable world beneath. Then, with an ominous sputter, the port engine conked out. The plane lurched and slipped into a dive. Down it whirled again into the steady light of the green land. Trees came out of the ground, huge fern-like plants with crimson-scaled trunks. Toward a clump of these the plane swooped. Frantically Garin fought the controls. The ship steadied. The dive became a fast glide. He looked for an open space to land. Then he felt the landing gear scrape some surface. Directly ahead loomed one of the fern trees. The plane sped toward the long fronds. There came a ripping crash, the splintering of metal and wood. The scarlet cloud gathering before Garin's eyes turned black. Chapter 2 The Folk of the Tav Garin returned to consciousness through a red mist of pain. He was pinned in the crumpled mass of metal which had once been the cabin. Through a rent in the wall close to his head thrust a long spike of green, shredded leaves still clinging to it. He lay and watched it, not daring to move lest the pain prove more than he could bear. It was then that he heard the pattering sound outside. It seemed as if soft hands were pushing and pulling at the wreck. The tree branch shook and a portion of the cabin wall dropped away with a clang. Garin turned his head slowly. Through the aperture was clamoring a goblin figure. It stood about five feet tall, and it walked upon its hind legs in human fashion, but the legs were short and stumpy, ending in feet with five toes of equal length. Slender, shapely arms possessed small hands with only four digits. The creature had a high, well-rounded forehead, but no chin, the face being distinctly lizard-like in contour. The skin was a dull black with a velvety surface. About its loins it wore a short kilt of metallic cloth, the garment being supported by a jeweled belt of exquisite workmanship. For a long moment the apparition eyed Garin, and it was those golden eyes, fixed unwinkingly on his, which banished the flyer's fear. There was nothing but great pity in their depths. The lizard-man stooped and brushed the sweat-dampened hair from Garin's forehead. Then he fingered the bonds of metal which held the flyer, as if estimating their strength. Having done so, he turned to the opening and apparently gave an order, returning again to squat by Garin. Two more of his kind appeared to tear away the ruins of the cockpit. Though they were very careful, Garin fainted twice before they had freed him. He was placed on a litter, swung between two clumsy beasts which might have been small elephants except that they lacked trunks and possessed four tusks each. They crossed the plain to the towering mouth of a huge cavern where the litter was taken up by four of the lizard folk. The flyer lay staring up at the roof of the cavern. In the black stone had been carved fronds and flowers in bewildering profusion. Shining motes giving off faint light sifted through the air. 
At times they advanced. These gathered in clusters, and the light grew brighter. Midway down a long corridor the bearers halted while their leader pulled upon a knob on the wall. An oval door swung back, and the party passed through. They came into a round room, the walls of which had been fashioned of creamy quartz, veined with violet. At the highest point in the ceiling a large globe of the motes hung, furnishing soft light below. Two lizard-men clad in long robes conferred with the leader of the flyer's party before coming to stand over Garin. One of the robed ones shook his head at the sight of the flyer's twisted body and waved the litter on into an inner chamber. Here the walls were dull blue, and in the exact center was a long block of quartz. By this the litter was put down and the bearers disappeared. With sharp knives the robed men cut away furs and leather to expose Garin's broken body. They lifted him to the quartz table and there made him fast with metal bonds. Then one of them went to the wall and pulled a gleaming rod. From the dome of the roof shot an eerie blue light to beat upon Garin's helpless body. There followed a tingling through every muscle and joint, a prickling sensation in his skin. But soon his pain vanished as if it had never been. The light flashed off and the three lizard-men gathered around him. He was wrapped in a soft robe and carried to another room. This, too, was circular, shaped like the half of a giant bubble. The floor sloped toward the center where there was a depression filled with cushions. There they laid Garin. At the top of the bubble a pinkish cloud formed. He watched it drowsily until he fell asleep. Something warm stirred against his bare shoulder. He opened his eyes for a moment, unable to remember where he was. Then there was a plucking at the robe twisted about him, and he looked down. If the lizard-folk had been goblin in their grotesqueness, this visitor was elfin. It was about three feet high, its monkey-like body completely covered with silky white hair. The tiny hands were human in shape and hairless, but its feet were much like a cat's paws. From either side of the small round head branched large fan-shaped ears. The face was furred and boasted stiff cat-whiskers on the upper lip. These Annas, as Garin learned later, were happy little creatures, each one choosing some mistress or master among the folk, as this one had come to him. They were content to follow their big protector, speechless with delight at trifling gifts. Loyal and brave, they could do simple tasks or carry written messages for their chosen friend, and they remained with him until death. They were neither beast nor human, but rumored to be the result of some experiment carried out eons ago by the Ancient Ones. After patting Garin's shoulder, the Anna touched the flyer's hair wonderingly, comparing the bronze lengths with its own white fur. Since the folk were hairless, hair was a strange sight in the caverns. With a contented purr it rubbed its head against his hand. With a sudden click a door in the wall opened. The Anna got to its feet and ran to greet the newcomers. The chieftain of the folk, he who had first discovered Garin, entered, followed by several of his fellows. The flyer sat up. Not only was the pain gone, but he felt stronger and younger than he had for weary months. Exultingly he stretched wide his arms and grinned at the lizard-being who murmured happily in return. Lizard-men busied themselves about Garin, girding on him the short kilt and jewel-set belt which were the only clothing of the caverns. When they were finished the chieftain took his hand and drew him to the door. 
They traversed a hallway whose walls were carved and inlaid with glittering stones and metalwork, coming at last into a huge cavern, the outer walls of which were hidden by shadows. On a dais stood three tall thrones, and Garin was conducted to the foot of these. The highest throne was of rose crystal. On its right was one of green jade, worn smooth by centuries of time. At the left was a third, carved of a single block of jet. The rose throne and that of jet were unoccupied, but in the seat of jade reposed one of the folk. He was taller than his fellows, and in his eyes, as he stared at Garin, was wisdom and a brooding sadness. "'It is well,' the words resounded in the flyer's head. "'We have chosen wisely. This youth is fit to mate with the daughter. But he will be tried as fire tries metal. He must win the daughter forth and strive with Kepta.' A hissing murmur echoed through the hall. Garin guessed that hundreds of the folk must be gathered there. "'Erg!' the being on the throne commanded. The chieftain moved a step toward the dais. Do you take this youth and instruct him? And then I will speak with him again. For—sadness colored the words now—we would have the rose throne filled again and the black one blasted into dust. Time moves swiftly. The chieftain led a wandering Garin away. Chapter 3 Garin Hears of the Black Ones Erg brought the flyer into one of the bubble-shaped rooms which contained a low, cushioned bench facing a metal screen, and here they seated themselves. What followed was a language lesson. On the screen appeared objects which Erg would name, to have his sibilant utterings repeated by Garin. As the American later learned, the ray treatment he had undergone had quickened his mental powers, and in an incredibly short time he had a working vocabulary. Judging by the pictures, the lizard folk were the rulers of the crater world, although there were other forms of life there. The elephant-like Tand was a beast of burden. The squirrel-like Eron lived underground and carried on a crude agriculture in small clearings, coming shyly twice a year to exchange grain for a liquid rubber produced by the folk. Then there was the Gibby, a monstrous bee, also friendly to the lizard people. It supplied the cavern-dwellers with wax, and in return the folk gave the Gibby colonies shelter during the unhealthful times of the Great Mists. Highly civilized were the folk. They did no work by hand, except the finer kinds of jewel-setting and carving. Machines wove their metal cloth. Machines prepared their food, harvested their fields, hollowed out new dwellings. Freed from manual labor, they had turned to acquiring knowledge. Erg projected on the screen pictures of vast laboratories and great libraries of scientific lore. But all they knew in the beginning they had learned from the Ancient Ones, a race unlike themselves which had preceded them in sovereignty over Tav. Even the folk themselves were the result of constant forced evolution and experimentation carried on by these Ancient Ones. All this wisdom was guarded most carefully, but against what or whom Erg could not tell although he insisted that the danger was very real. There was something within the blue wall of the crater which disputed the folk's rule. As Garin tried to probe further, a gong sounded. Erg arose. It is the hour of eating, he announced. Let us go. They came to a large room where a heavy table of white stone stretched along three walls, benches before it. Erg seated himself and pressed a knob on the table, motioning Garin to do likewise. The wall facing them opened and two trays slid out. 
There was a platter of hot meat covered with rich sauce, a stone bowl of grain porridge, and a cluster of fruit still fastened to a leafy branch. This the Anna eyed so wistfully that Garin gave it to the creature. The folk ate silently and arose quietly when they had finished, their trays vanishing back through the wall. Garin noticed only males in the room and recalled that he had as yet seen no females among the folk. He ventured a question. Urg chuckled. So, you think there are no women in the caverns? Well, we shall go to the Hall of Women that you may see. To the Hall of Women they went. It was breathtaking in its richness, stones worth a nation's ransom sparkling from its domed roof and painted walls. Here were the matrons and maidens of the folk, their black forms veiled in robes of silver net, each cross-strand of which was set with a tiny gem, so that they appeared to be wrapped in glittering scales. There were not many of them, a hundred perhaps, and a few led by the hand smaller editions of themselves, who stared at Garin with round yellow eyes and chewed black fingertips shyly. The women were entrusted with the finest jewel-work, and with pride they showed the stranger their handiwork. At the far end of the hall was a wondrous thing in the making. One of the silver nets, which were the foundations of their robes, was fastened there, and three of the women were putting small rose jewels into each microscopic setting. Here and there they had varied the pattern with tiny emeralds or flaming opals, so that the finished portion was a rainbow. One of the workers smoothed the robe and glanced up at Garin, a gentle teasing in her voice as she explained, This is for the daughter when she comes to her throne. The daughter? What had the Lord of the Folk said? This youth is fit to mate with the daughter. But Urg had said that the Ancient Ones had gone from Tav. Who is the daughter? he demanded. Thrala of the Light. Where is she? The woman shivered, and there was fear in her eyes. Thrala lies in the Caves of Darkness. The Caves of Darkness? Did she mean Thrala was dead? Was he, Garin Featherstone, to be the victim of some rite of sacrifice which was designed to unite him with the dead? Urg touched his arm. Not so. Thrala has not yet entered the place of ancestors. You, you know my thoughts? Urg laughed. Thoughts are easy to read. Thrala lives. Sera served the daughter as handmaiden while she was yet among us. Sera, do you show us Thrala as she was? The woman crossed to a wall where there was a mirror such as Urg had used for his language lesson. She gazed into it and then beckoned the flyer to stand beside her. The mirror misted and then he was looking as if through a window into a room with walls and ceiling of rose quartz. On the floor were thick rugs of silver rose, and a great heap of cushions made a low couch in the center. The inner chamber of the daughter, Sarah announced. A circular panel in the wall opened and a woman slipped through. She was very young, little more than a girl. There were happy curves in her full crimson lips, joyous lights in her violet eyes. She was human of shape, but her beauty was unearthly. Her skin was pearl-white, and other colors seemed to play faintly upon it, so that it reminded Garin of Mother of Pearl with its lights and shadows. The hair which veiled her as a cloud was blue-black and reached below her knees. She was robed in the silver net of the folk, and there was a heavy girdle of rose-shaded jewels about her slender waist. That was Thrala before the Black Ones took her, said Sira. Garin uttered a cry of disappointment as the picture vanished. Urg laughed. 
What care you for shadows when the daughter herself waits for you? You have but to bring her from the Caves of Darkness. Where are these caves? Garin's question was interrupted by the pealing of the cavern gong. Sarah cried out, The Black Ones! Urg shrugged. When they spared not the Ancient Ones, how would we hope to escape? Come, we must go to the Hall of Thrones. Before the Jade Throne of the Lord of the Folk stood a small group of the Lizardmen beside two litters. As Garin entered, the Lord spoke. Let the Outlander come hither, that he may see the work of the Black Ones. Garin advanced unwillingly, coming to stand by those struggling things which gasped their message between moans and screams of agony. They were men of the Folk, but their black skins were green with rot. The Lord leaned forward on his throne. It is well, he said. You may depart. As if obeying his command, the tortured things let go of the life to which they had clung and were still. Look upon the work of the Black Ones, the ruler said to Garin. Jiv and Bediv were captured while on a mission to the Gibby of the Cliff. It seems that the Black Ones needed material for their laboratories. They seek even to give the daughter to their workers of horror. A terrible cry of hatred arose from the hall, and Garin's jaw set to give that fair vision he had just seen to such a death as this. Jiv and Bediv were imprisoned close to the daughter, and they heard the threats of Kepta. Our brothers, stricken with foul disease, were sent forth to carry the plague to us, but they swam through the pool of boiling mud. They have died, but the evil died with them. And I think that while we breed such as they, the Black Ones shall not rest easy. Listen now, Outlander, to the story of the Black Ones and the Caves of Darkness, of how the Ancient Ones brought the folk up from the slime of a long-dried sea and made them great, and of how the Ancient Ones at last went down to their destruction. CHAPTER Four: THE DEFEAT OF THE ANCIENT ONES In the days before the lands of the outer world were born of the sea, before even the land of the sun, Mu, and the land of the sea, Atlantis, arose from molten rock and sand, there was land here in the far south. A seer land of rock plains and swamps, where slimy life made it, lived, and died. Then came the ancient ones from beyond the stars. Their race was already older than this earth. Their wise men had watched its birth-rending from the sun, and when their world perished, taking most of their blood into nothingness, a handful fled hither. But when they climbed from their spaceship it was into hell, for they had gained in place of their loved home bare rock and stinking slime. They blasted out this tav, and entered into it with the treasures of their flying ships, and also certain living creatures captured in the swamps. From these they produced the folk, the Gibby, the Tand, and the land-tending Eron. Among these the folk were eager for wisdom and climbed high, but still the learning of the Ancient Ones remained beyond their grasp. During the eons the Ancient Ones dwelt within their protecting wall of haze, the outer world changed. Cold came to the north and south. The land of sun and the land of sea arose to bear the foot of true man. On their mirrors of seeing, the Ancient Ones watched man-life spread across the world. They had the power of prolonging life, but still the race was dying. From without must come new blood. So certain men were summoned from the land of the sun. Then the race flourished for a space. The Ancient Ones decided to leave Tav for the outer world, but the sea swallowed the land of the sun. 
Again, in the time of the Land of Sea, the stock within Tav was replenished and the Ancient Ones prepared for exodus. Again the sea cheated them. Those men left in the outer world reverted to savagery. Since the Ancient Ones would not mingle their blood with that of almost beasts, they built the haze wall stronger and remained. But a handful of them were attracted by the forbidden, and secretly they summoned the beast men. Of that monstrous mating came the black ones. They live but for the evil they may do, and the power which they acquired is debased and used to forward cruelty. At first their sin was not discovered. When it was, the others would have slain the offspring but for the law which forbids them to kill. They must use their power for good or it departs from them. So they drove the black ones to the southern end of Tav and gave them the Caves of Darkness. Never were the black ones to come north of the River of Gold, nor were the ancient ones to go south of it. For perhaps two thousand years the black ones kept the law. But they worked, building powers of destruction. While matters rested thus, the ancient ones searched the world, seeking men by whom they could renew the race. Once there came men from an island far to the north. Six lived to penetrate the mists and take wives among the daughters. Again they called the yellow-haired men of another breed, great sea-rovers. But the black ones called, too. As the ancient ones searched for the best, the black ones brought in the great workers of evil. And at last they succeeded in shutting off the channels of sending thought so that the ancient ones could call no more. Then did the black ones cross the river of gold and enter the land of the ancient ones. Thran, dweller in the light and lord of the caverns, summoned the folk to him. There will come one to aid you, he told us. Try the summoning again after the black ones have seemed to win. Thrala, daughter of the light, will not enter into the room of pleasant death with the rest of the women, but will give herself into the hands of the black ones, that they may think themselves truly victorious. You of the folk withdraw into the place of reptiles until the black ones are gone. Nor will all the ancient ones perish. More will be saved, but the manner of their preservation I dare not tell. When the sun-haired youth comes from the outer world, send him into the caves of darkness to rescue Thrala and put an end to evil. And then the Lady Thrala arose and said softly, As the Lord Thran has said, so let it be. I shall deliver myself into the hands of the Black Ones, that their doom may come upon them. Lord Thran smiled upon her as he said, So will happiness be your portion. After the great mists, does not light come again? The women of the Ancient Ones then took their leave and passed into the place of pleasant death, while the men made ready for battle with the Black Ones. For three days they fought, but a new weapon of the Black Ones won the day, and the chief of the Black Ones set up this throne of jet as proof of his power. Since, however, the Black Ones were not happy in the caverns, longing for the darkness of their caves, they soon withdrew, and we, the folk, came forth again. But now the time has come when the Dark Ones will sacrifice the daughter to their evil. If you can win her free, Outlander, they shall perish as if they had not been." "'What of the Ancient Ones?' asked Garin. "'Those others,' Thrawn said, would be saved." "'Of those we know nothing, save that when we bore the bodies of the Fallen to the place of ancestors there were some missing. That you may see the truth of this story, Erg will take you to the gallery above the room of pleasant death, and you may look upon those who sleep there." 
Urg guiding, Garin climbed a steep ramp leading from the Hall of Thrones. This led to a narrow balcony, one side of which was clear crystal. Urg pointed down. They were above a long room whose walls were tinted jade green. On the polished floor were scattered piles of cushions. Each was occupied by a sleeping woman, and several of these clasped a child in their arms. Their long hair rippled to the floor. Their curved lashes made dark shadows on pale faces. "'But they are sleeping,' protested Garin. Urg shook his head. "'It is the sleep of death. Twice each ten hours vapors rise from the floor. Those breathing them do not wake again, and if they are undisturbed they will lie thus for a thousand years. Look, there!' He pointed to the closed double doors of the room. There lay the first men of the Ancient Ones Garin had seen. They too seemed but asleep, their handsome heads pillowed on their arms. Thran ordered those who remained after the last battle in the Hall of Thrones to enter the Room of Pleasant Death, that the Black Ones might not torture them for their beastly pleasures. Thran himself remained behind to close the door, and so died. There were no aged among the sleepers. None of the men seemed to count more than thirty years, and many of them appeared younger. Garin remarked upon this. The Ancient Ones appeared thus until the day of their death, though many lived twice a hundred years. The light-rays kept them so. Even we of the Folk can hold back age. But come now, our Lord Trar would speak with you again. CHAPTER Five, INTO THE CAVES OF DARKNESS Again Garin stood before the jade throne of Trar, and heard the stirring of the multitude of the Folk in the shadows. Trar was turning a small rod of glittering greenish metal around in his soft hands. "'Listen well, Outlander,' he began, "'for little time remains to us. Within seven days the great mists will be upon us. Then no living thing may venture forth from shelter and escape death. And before that time Thrala must be out of the caves. This rod will be your weapon. The Black Ones have not its secret. Watch.' Two of the folk dragged an ingot of metal before him. He touched it with the rod. Great flakes of rust appeared to spread across the entire surface. It crumpled away, and one of the folk trod upon the pile of dust where it had been. Thrala lies in the heart of the caves, but Kepta's men have grown careless with the years. Enter boldly, and trust to fortune. They know nothing of your coming, or of Thran's words concerning you. Urg stood forward and held out his hands in appeal. "'What would you, Urg?' "'Lord, I would go with the outlander. He knows nothing of the forest of the Morgels or the pool of mud. It is easy to go astray in the woodland.' Trar shook his head. "'That may not be. He must go alone, even as Thran said.' The Anna, which had followed in Garin's shadow all day, whistled shrilly and stood on tiptoe to tug at his hand. Trar smiled. That one may go. Its eyes may serve you well. Urg will guide you to the outer portal of the Place of Ancestors and set you upon the road to the caves. Farewell, Outlander, and may the spirits of the Ancient Ones be with you." Garin bowed to the ruler of the folk and turned to follow Urg. Near the door stood a small group of women. Sarah pressed forward from them, holding out a small bag. Outlander, she said hurriedly, when you look upon the daughter, speak to her of Sarah for I have awaited her many years." He smiled. That I will. If you remember, Outlander, 
I am a great lady among the folk, and have my share of suitors. Yet I think I could envy the daughter. Nay, I shall not explain that," she laughed mockingly. You will understand in due time. Here is a packet of food. Now go swiftly, that we may have you among us again before the mists." So a woman's farewell sped them on their way. Urg chose a ramp which led downward. At its foot was a niche in the rock, above which a rose light burned dimly. Urg reached within the hollow and drew out a pair of high buskins which he aided Garin to lace on. They were a good fit, having been fashioned for a man of the Ancient Ones. The passage before them was narrow and crooked. There was a thick carpet of dust underfoot, patterned by the prints of the folk. They rounded a corner, and a tall door loomed out of the gloom. Urg pressed the surface. There was a click, and the stone rolled back. This is the place of ancestors, he announced as he stepped within. They were at the end of a colossal hall, whose domed roof disappeared into shadows. Thick pillars of gleaming crystal divided it into aisles, all leading inward to a raised dais of oval shape. Filling the aisles were couches, and each soft nest held its sleeper. Near to the door lay the men and women of the folk, but closer to the dais were the ancient ones. Here and there a couch bore a double burden. Upon the shoulder of a man was pillowed the drooping head of a woman. Urg stopped beside such a one. See, Outlander? Here was one who was called from your world. Marina of the House of Light looked with favor upon him, and their days of happiness were many. The man on the couch had red-gold hair, and on his upper arm was a heavy band of gold whose mate Garin had once seen in a museum, a son of pre-Norman Ireland. Urg traced with a crooked finger the archaic lettering carved upon the stone base of the couch. Lovers in the light sleep sweetly. The light returns on the appointed day. Who lies there? Garin motioned to the dais. The first ancient ones. Come, look upon those who made this tav. On the dais the couches were arranged in two rows, and between them in the center was a single couch raised above the others. Fifty men and women lay as if but resting for the hour, smiles on their peaceful faces but weary shadows beneath their eyes. There was an unhuman quality about them which was lacking in their descendants. Urg advanced to the high couch and beckoned Garin to join him. A man and a woman lay there, the woman's head upon the man's breast. There was that in their faces which made Garin turn away. He felt as if he had intruded roughly where no man should go. Here lies Thran, son of light, first lord of the caverns, and his lady Thralla, dweller in the light. So have they lain a thousand thousand years, and so will they lie until this planet rots to dust beneath them. They led the folk out of the slime and made Tav. Such as they we shall never see again. They passed silently down the aisles of the dead. Once Garin caught sight of another fair-haired man, perhaps another outlander, since the ancient ones were all dark of hair. Urg paused once more before they left the hall. He stood by the couch of a man wrapped in a long robe whose face was ravaged with marks of agony. Urg spoke a single name, Thrawn. So this was the last lord of the caverns. Garin leaned closer to study the dead face, but Urg seemed to have lost his patience. He hurried his charge on to a panel door. This is the southern portal of the caverns, he explained. Trust to the Anna to guide you, and beware of the boiling mud. Should the Morgrels scent you, kill quickly. They are the servants of the Black Ones. 
May fortune favor you, Outlander. The door was open, and Garin looked out upon Tav. The soft blue light was as strong as it had been when he had first seen it. With the Anna perched on his shoulder, the green rod and the bag of food in his hands, he stepped out onto the moss sod. Urg raised his hand in salute, and the door clicked into place. Garin stood alone, pledged to bring the daughter out of the Caves of Darkness. There is no night or day in Tav, since the blue light is steady. But the folk divide their time by artificial means. However, Garin, being newly come from the rays of healing, felt no fatigue. As he hesitated, the Anna chattered and pointed confidently ahead. Before them was a dense wood of fern-trees. It was quiet in the forest as Garin made his way into its gloom, and for the first time he noted a peculiarity of Tav. There were no birds. The portion of the woodland that they had to transverse was but a spur of the forest to the west. After an hour of travel they came out upon the bank of a sluggish river. The turbid waters of the stream were a dull saffron color. This, thought Garin, must be the River of Gold, the boundary of the lands of the Black Ones. He rounded a bend to come upon a bridge, so old that time itself had worn its stone's angles into curves. The bridge gave on a wide plain where tall grass grew sere and yellow. To the left was a hissing and bubbling, and a huge wave of boiling mud arose in the air. Garin choked in the wind, thick with chemicals which blew from it. He smelled and tasted the sulfur-tainted air all across the plain, and he was glad enough to plunge into a small fern-grove which half concealed a spring. There he bathed his head and arms while the Anna pulled open Sira's food-bag. Together they ate the cakes of grain and the dried fruit. When they were done, the Anna tugged at Garin's hand and pointed on. Cautiously Garin wormed his way through the thick underbrush until at last he looked out into a clearing and at its edge the entrance of the Black One's caves. Two tall pillars carved into the likeness of foul monsters guarded a rough-edged hole. A fine greenish mist whirled and danced in its mouth. The flyer studied the entrance. There was no life to be seen. He gripped the destroying rod and inched forward. Before the green mist he braced himself and then stepped within. Chapter 6 Kepta's Second Prisoner The green mist enveloped Garin. He drew into his lungs hot, moist air, faintly tinged with a scent of sickly sweetness, as from some hidden corruption. Green motes in the air gave forth little light, and seemed to cling to the intruder. With the Anna pattering before him, the American started down a steep ramp the soft soles of his buskins making no sound. At regular intervals along the wall niches held small statues, and about each perverted figure was a crown of green motes. The Anna stopped, its large ears outspread as if to catch the faintest murmur of sound. From somewhere under the earth came the howls of a maddened dog. The Anna shivered, creeping closer to Garin. Down led the ramp, growing narrower and steeper and louder sounded the insane coughing howls of the dog. Then the passage was abruptly barred by a grill of black stone. Garin peered through its bars at a flight of stairs leading down into a pit. From the pit arose snarling laughter. Padding back and forth were things which might have been conceived by demons. They were sleek, rat-like creatures, hairless and large as ponies. 
Red saliva dripped from the corners of their sharp jaws. But in the eyes, which they raised now and then toward the grill, there was intelligence. These were the Morgrels, watchdogs and slaves of the Black Ones. From a second pair of stairs directly across the pit arose a moaning call. A door opened and two men came down the steps. The Morgrels surged forward but fell back when whips were cracked over their heads. The masters of the Morgrels were human in appearance. Black loincloths were twisted about them, and long, wing-shaped cloaks hung from their shoulders. On their heads, completely masking their hair, were cloth caps which bore ragged crests not unlike coxcombs. As far as Garin could see, they were unarmed except for their whips. A second party was coming down the steps. Between two of the black ones struggled a prisoner. He made a desperate and hopeless fight of it, but they dragged him to the edge of the pit before they halted. The Morgrels, intent upon their promised prey, crouched before them. Five steps above were two figures to whom the guards looked for instructions. One was a man of their race, a slender, handsome body and evil, beautiful face. His hand lay possessively upon the arm of his companion. It was Thrala who stood beside him, her head proudly erect. The laughter curves were gone from her lips. There was only sorrow and resignation to be read there now. But her spirit burned like a white flame in her eyes. Look, her warder ordered, does not Kepta keep his promises? Shall we give Dantan to the jaws of our slaves, or will you unsay certain words of yours, Lady Thrala? The prisoner answered for her. Kepta, son of vileness, Thrala is not for you. Remember, beloved one, he spoke to the daughter. The day of deliverance is at hand. Garin felt a sudden emptiness. The prisoner had called Thrala beloved with the ease of one who had the right. I await Thrala's answer, Kepta returned evenly. And her answer he got. Beast among beasts. You may send Dantan to his death. You may heap all manner of insult and evil upon me. But still, I say, the daughter is not for your touch. Rather, I will cut the line of life with my own hands, taking upon me the punishment of the Elder Ones. To Dantan, she smiled down upon the prisoner, I say farewell. We shall meet again beyond the curtain of time. She held out her hands to him. Thrala, dear one! One of his guards slapped a hand over the prisoner's mouth, putting an end to his words. But now Thrala was looking beyond him, staring at the grill which sheltered Garin. Kepta pulled at her arm to gain her attention. Watch! Thus do my enemies die! To the pit with him! The guards twisted their prisoner around, and the Morgrels crept closer, their eyes fixed upon that young, writhing body. Garin knew that he must take a hand in the game. The Anna was tugging him to the right, and there was an open archway leading to a balcony running around the side of the pit. Those below were too entranced by the coming sport to notice the invader. But Thrala glanced up, and Garin thought that she sighted him. Something in her attitude attracted Kepta. He too looked up. For a moment he stared in stark amazement, and then he thrust the daughter through the door behind him. Ho, outlander! Welcome to the caves, so the folk have meddled. Greeting, Kepta. Garin hardly knew whence came the words which fell so easily from his tongue. I have come, as was promised, to remain until the Black Throne is no more. Not even the Morgrels boast before their prey lies limp in their jaws, flashed Kepta. 
What manner of beast are you? A clean beast, Kepta, which you are not. Bid your two-legged morgels loose the youth, lest I grow impatient. The flyer swung the green rod into view. Kepta's eyes narrowed, but his smile did not fade. I have heard of old that the Ancient Ones do not destroy. As an outlander I am not bound by their limits, returned Garin, as you will learn if you do not call off your stinking pack. The master of the caves laughed. You are as the Tand, a fool without a brain. Never shall you see the caverns again. You shall owe me master yet, Kepta. The black chief seemed to consider. Then he waved to his men. Release him, he ordered. Outlander, you are braver than I thought. We might bargain. Thrala goes forth from the caves, and the black throne is dust. Those are the terms of the caverns. And if we do not accept? Then Thrala goes forth, the throne is dust, and Tav shall have a day of judging such as it has never seen before. You challenge me? Again. Words which seemed to Garin to have their origin elsewhere came to him. As in Ulac I shall take— Before Kepta could reply there was trouble in the pit. Dantan, freed by his guards, was crossing the floor in running leaps. Garin threw himself belly down on the balcony and dropped the jeweled strap of his belt over the lip. A moment later it snapped taut, and he stiffened to an upward pull. Already Dantan's heels were above the snapping jaws of a morgrel. The flyer caught the youth around the shoulders and heaved. They rolled together against the wall. They are all gone, all of them, Dantan cried as he regained his feet. He was right. The morgrels howled below, but Kepta and his men had vanished. Thrala! Garin exclaimed. Dantan nodded. They have taken her back to the cells. They believe her safe there. Then they think wrong. Garin stooped to pick up the green rod. His companion laughed. We'd best start before they get prepared for us. Garin picked up the Anna. Which way? Dantan showed him a passage leading from behind the other door. Then he dodged into a side chamber to return with two of the wing cloaks and cloth hoods so that they might pass as black ones. They went by the mouths of three side tunnels, all deserted. None disputed their going. All the black ones had withdrawn from this part of the caves. Dantan sniffed uneasily. All is not well. I, I fear a trap. While we can pass, let us. The passage curved to the right, and they came into an oval room. Again Dantan shook his head, but ventured no protest. Instead he flung open a door and hurried down a short hall. It seemed to Garin that there were strange rustlings and squeakings in the dark corners. Then Dantan stopped so short that the flyer ran into him. Here is the guard-room, and, and it is empty. Garin looked over his shoulder into a large room. Racks of strange weapons hung on the walls, and the sleeping pallets of the guards were stacked evenly, but the men were nowhere to be seen. They crossed the room and passed beneath an archway. Even the bars are not down, observed Dantan. He pointed overhead. There hung a portcullis of stone. Garin studied it apprehensively, but Dantan drew him on into a narrow corridor where were barred doors. The cells, he explained, and withdrew a bar across one door. The portal swung back and they pushed within. End of Part One 
of the people of the crater by andre norton